Well, good, good morning, Connection Point. Uh, if you're just joining us on a live stream, we're here, so that's awesome. Um, and we're also here at Inspiration, so if you are present in the building, let's hear it. That's right. I will tell you that this has been a, a challenging morning. Whenever I think God is about to do something incredible, he usually starts with uh, attacking technology and attacking uh, Joey and I, and so I think he's hit all three today. And so I will tell you, I can't hear a word that's being said even by my own self because, uh, and that's why I've got an earplug in. I'm not trying to ignore anyone. Um, but it's great to be here. I've seen a lot of faces today that I haven't seen in a while. I've got Antonio and uh, Antonia in the corner over there. Uh, it is just awesome to see. They have the Bassett family who I, I met for the first time this week here. My lovely wife is here. My brother's here. I get to see them all the time. We got the Bensons over here. I'm so excited to see y'all. If you are joining us online, we would love for you just to say, hey, right now, let us know that you are here as we go continue going through this series on Genesis called the story of us. And I really think that even if you are a child in here today, we've got everywhere from eight to, to more than eight in here today. And a lot of these stories we've heard before, a lot of these stories, uh, we kind of just in our mind default to already know what that's about. And so when we get to Genesis chapter six, we get to Noah and the flood. Most of us kind of think, okay, I already know about Noah and the flood, but I promise you, whether this is your first time hearing the story, that's a foundation that you're gonna build on. But for some of you that have heard the story over and over again, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks on it. And I really think you're gonna be challenged and learn a lot of new things. And so I'm very excited about it. And I wanna kind of remind us where we've been the, this is the story of us because this is the, really the story of us in the room, of every one of us watching this. These stories tell us why the world is the way it is, how God intended it and how it is. And so some of the things we've learned, we learned that God loves us, that God created, but we also learned that man uh, has, has walked away from God. And that in many ways, whether it, was, whether it was Adam and Eve deciding to eat fruit or whether it was uh, Cain deciding to, to not listen to God and to kill his brother Abel, there's this rebellion in man. And we talked about a few weeks ago in Genesis 5 how these two genealogies kind of went off in two directions. We had the genealogy of, of Cain, the lineage of Cain, and it was all focused on progress. It was focused on uh, getting ahead but you never heard in Genesis 5 on the line of Cain, you never heard anything about walking with God. And then there was the other side, and it was uh, the line of Seth. We've got a Seth in the building. Every time you say Seth, you could, you could cheer for Seth over there. With the line of Seth was kind of the line of God. It was the, the line that, would, that was walking with God, and there were a lot of interesting things about that. But what, what that paints for us sometimes is it kind of, we, we take on this narrative that there is good and there is evil. And that's one of the things when we think about the Bible, oh, I need to be good, not evil. That's going to get demolished today, okay? Because that's kind of how Genesis 5 takes it. It takes it, there's the line of Cain, there's the line of Seth, there's good and bad, and we wanna be good. The problem is, is that every single person watching this, every single person here thinks that they are Good. No one in here would say, you know what, I'm probably on the line of Cain. I'm probably going on. No, we always think, even if we're doing evil things, in our mind we think it's good. And so that's why when we go to this story today, it really, I think, is going to speak to us in some powerful ways. Because I believe 
that the Bible has the solution to every problem in the world. I really believe that. The Bible has the solution to every problem in the world. But most of us, when we think about the problems, what do we think about? We think about them, right? In fact, right now, if I were to say, you know what, you know who's screwing up the world, it's them. How many of you have an idea of who you think them would be, okay? It's probably a different political party. It's probably, maybe it's a different uh, religion. I don't know what it is for you, but you have a them problem. Whereas when we look at the Bible, we're going to see there's a, there's a problem when we look only at the other, at good and evil, only at their, they're the other side, they're evil, because it, it's, it's, Never the way that God works. God never works by just, just hey, I'm going to solve this whole issue. Instead, he almost always points it back to, instead of looking at them, we're going to have to look at us. I think about it this way. Um, have you, if you have kids or if you were a kid and you can remember back to whenever you were made to clean the whole house, how many of you ever have this battle that goes on when you have to clean the house and you've got children involved? Now, for me, this is how it goes pick up your stuff and they will, I will walk through somebody's room and it will be filled with uh, a pile that's getting cleaned and then there will be little things that will not be touched. And the reason they are not touched is because that's not mine. And so our living room will be full of stuff it, a lot of times it'll be, I will watch someone, I will watch them get some milk out of the refrigerator. I will watch them set it down on the counter. And then I will say, hey, can you go clean up the milk? And what do they say? I wasn't the last one to drink it. They got it out, but they weren't the last one. It's always, always someone else. And that we see that at every layer. Whereas we all know the solution is if we would all start with ourselves, hey, what, what did I have a hand in? What did I have responsibility in? That's where we need to begin. And so when we look and when I say that, that the Bible really does have all the solutions to every problem, whether it's in your personal life or in politics, life, everything we see on a grand scale, it does. I believe that with all of my heart. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to see how far we get today. Um, but I want us to keep this in mind that God is doing a great work, and we need to pull out some of these truths, okay? So we're going to start off right after chapter 5. We had these two lines that were going, but Genesis 6 is going to pull them back together. We had a good line and a bad line, basically, uh, in Genesis chapter 5. But Genesis chapter 6, it says this. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as wives, any they chose. Okay. And so it's pulled everyone back together. There's a big problem. And the problem isn't one line. The problem now is everyone. And, and before we can go forward, there's a couple of uh, things we need to know. This idea of the sons of God. In fact, there's been, we're going to run into some of the most confusing things in this sermon that you probably will find in the entire uh, Bible. And the sons of God coming down and all it says is they went into the, the daughters, which we assume is they had relations with the daughters but uh, of, of men. But there's a lot of, of, of conjecture of what this means. And I will tell you, no one knows exactly what this means. But the good news for some of y'all is that one of the theories involves aliens that we're going to get to, okay? So that's always good. Here's the, th the four different things that, uh, that 
the four different perspectives on who the sons of God were, okay? Because it's very confusing. What does it mean that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as wives? What does that mean? Now, one of the main theories of this is that these were angels from heaven, or some would say that they were uh, kind of a, a lower pantheon of gods. That's what some of the commentaries have said. Throughout Christian history, angels has been a big, uh, a lot of people think fallen angels is what this uh, is referring to. Um, I will tell you that Jewish commentators never took that angle. I haven't found one uh, Jewish rabbi or one Jewish person who, who read this and thought they're talking about angels, okay? But that's definitely a possibility. And one of the things I will tell you that is going on here is that there is, in the other cultures of the people that would have been around the Hebrew people, there were what we call fertility cults. In other words, one of the ways that you would worship in a lot of the pagan areas around where you would go and have relations actually with somebody in the temple, and it was a way to commune with God. And so one of the things that's certainly going on here is it's speaking against this idea that somehow that is a good thing to do, okay? So that is definitely... The sons of God could, could be that it's not really divine creatures, but this idea of communing with God through this is an evil act. That could be going on here. Another thing that could be going on here is it could be referring to kings or royalty. One of the things that, uh, that kings would do in this time is they would call themselves God, basically, or that they were the child of God, and that was a common belief. And so sometimes they would just refer to royalty, um, especially at royal, royal lines where there's a son and there's another son, and, and so the, there's a lineage of kings. The kings would actually write sons of God. That's how they would refer, refer to their children. That's what they would say. And so it could be that they're talking just about the royalty, the people who were supposed to be leading began to um, mix with a common folk. You could read it that way. Another thing is the aliens. That's definitely how lately you can find more, more people who will conjecture. Maybe it's aliens coming down from heaven. I will tell you that's much like the, the angel theory that I'm guessing thousands of years ago, if you saw angels come from heaven or you saw aliens, it looks pretty similar, I'm guessing, I don't know. But I've read that several where. I don't think that has anything to do with what they were thinking. I just wanna throw that out there. Um, the last one in the, in the way that I really have come around on, but I don't wanna tell you you have to read it anyway. These are just four different ideas. The last one that most people and most commentators and scholars would say is that this refers to those two lineages in chapter five. We had uh, the daughters of men, which were basically people who were prideful and trying to just further mankind. That would be the line of Cain. The line of Cain, remember, that's where they were focused on culture. They were focused on being as good as they could be personally, but no, never in the line of Cain did they walk with God. So the, the line of Seth, though, every single one of them was walking with God. They began to call on the name of the Lord. And so the, the line of Seth is this line that was sons of God. They were, they were walking with God. They were following God. But then something happens. And now, for some reason, the people that were walking with God begin to do, make the same uh, sins and, and the same mindset as the people who were not walking with God. And so some God was, so some people would say, that this is, is this idea of good and evil just gelling together. And all of a sudden now, every single one is, is rebellion against God. But here's what I want you to say. And this, I'm going to give a prize away if I hear somebody answer this, okay? 
uh, in the room, sorry, if you're watching, those of you that are joining us online, I'm gonna give a prize to you in the comments, but I'll have to give it to you later because I can't see. Um, it says here, it, uh, uh, the, the phrasing of this should remind you of something. If you, uh, I want you to raise your hand if this reminds you of anything. It's another verse, and the answer is not Jesus, so John is out already. Um, it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive or good, and they took as their wives, as they chose. What does that remind you of? It reminds us of when Eve took the apple. It says she saw the tree, she saw that it was good, and she took it. And the phrase is the exact same, and that is not an accident. Understand that what Eve did was she made a judgment call. What God had said was not good. Eve said, oh, that's good. She redefined good and evil as to what she wanted, not what God had said. And so the, the, the writer here, Moses, as he's given this to us, is telling us, listen, this is the same sin that the people began to decide for themselves that I think this is gonna be good. I don't care what God said, I think this is gonna be good for me, so I'm gonna do it. So whatever you think the sons of God were, they made the, the same sin that, that almost all of us, if you rebel against God, it starts with you saying, you know what, I know God said that was bad, I know God said don't do that, but for me, it's okay, I'm gonna do it. And so they do it. And immediately there are effects to this, this pattern that we see. It says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I was a child and I would read this, I would always say to myself, oh, so, so nobody can live past 120, and that's how I read this verse. I wanna tell you, that's not what this verse is saying. And the reason we know it's not what this verse is saying is because Noah lives to be 900 years old. And in fact, uh, every other patriarch in Genesis will live to be over 120. And in fact, it's almost as if God, if God was telling us that men will not be over 120 years old ever again, uh, he seems to have forgot this because even to this day, there are people that live maybe to 121, allegedly, who knows. Um, but what this is saying is something interesting. It's, it's, it's basically God making a decree saying, I'm going to do something within the next 120 years. In other words, he's, he's saying, I'm going to give those of you on earth right now that are in rebellion to me 120 years. That 120 years is the time between when God made this decree and when the flood actually comes. It's kind of like when uh, I have, instead of 120 years, we have a 122nd rule in my house. It's when I say, hey, if you don't stop that in two minutes, I'm coming in there, okay? That's what God is doing here. He's giving us uh, um, uh, an ultimatum of, of saying, listen, I wanna give you a chance. I want to give you an opportunity before, this, before consequences have to come. God is giving some grace here. And so he says, there's going to be 120 years in which you can, can begin to walk with God again. And then we're going to get to kind of a sidebar. We like to chase rabbits, and, and it's in the text, so we want to chase this. Here's the most confusing text, I think, in the Bible. When This is going to be question numero uno, probably, that I'm asking God someday. Verse 4 through 6 says this, or, or verse 4 says this, excuse me. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore the children to them, 
These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, there are some problems with the Nephilim, and first of all, no one knows what the Nephilim really means. But here's what I want you to see. First of all, the Nephilim are not the sons of God. The Nephilim are not uh, the aliens or whatever the sons of God were, and they're not really aliens, okay? So I, I ought to quit saying that. The Nephilim were men, it says, men of renown of old. Now, some translations, will the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation that Jesus would have, uh, have known about and that Paul would have read, it says they were giants, okay? We know that they also existed, and it even says this, they were on in those days and then afterwards. After what? After the flood, the Nephilim are still around. If we read in Numbers chapter 13, it says that the spies go in to look at Israel and to see if they can actually take the promised land. And who do they see? They see the sons of Anak who are called the Nephilim. So it's very interesting, and I don't have an answer for you, but all I know is even from this, when, it's, when we know the flood is said to have wiped out every living creature, the Nephilim are on both sides, and I've heard theories about why, but I will just tell you, I have no idea. There were men of renown that apparently are on both sides of the, of the, um, of the flood. It's a, it's a question mark, but it's not hidden in the Bible. They out and out tell us before the flood comes. All that to say, you did have these Nephilim, and they were men of renown. They don't even seem to be um, evil. It's almost as if they're not considered inhumanity. It's very, very puzzling to me, and I've read a lot of things. But it's almost like we, we, we have this sidebar, kind of like a sermon of mine, where we chase a rabbit for five minutes, and you're like, what, what did that have to do with anything? The Nephilim are just kind of inserted into the text, but it tells us that those are the days there were those giants, those Nephilim, the men of renown were around, and they were also there afterwards. Now, the Lord saw the sons of man and the daughters of, of, I mean, the son of God, sons of God and the daughters of men and this evil where they're deciding for themselves what is right and wrong. They're deciding for themselves how they're going to live and they're choosing for themselves to rebel against God. And it says in the same pattern that we saw with Adam and Eve or, or with Eve and, and then earlier in this one, it says the Lord saw, but the Lord didn't see what was good. It's going to see the Lord saw evil and he didn't take and said, it's going to say he regretted or he grieved. It says the Lord saw the wickedness of man and that the wickedness of man on, was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted. And I want to say something about this. It doesn't mean, sometimes it says repented or the Lord, uh, he, he was sorry that he had done something. This doesn't mean he changed his mind just because he changed his mind. What it means is he is that, that man has gone, his, has gone his own way, and so the Lord is responding, okay? So it's not him changing his mind randomly. It's him responding to the, the evil that men have seen. God does not change. But when we sin against him, there is a response. And so he saw it. He saw that our hearts were evil and rebelling against him, and so he was grieved. It says that he grie it grieved him to his heart. Now, here's what I want us to see, and if you get nothing out of this sermon, this would be worthwhile, is this. There's a pattern that you and I have whenever it comes to following God, and that is we often will see something, and then we'll try to make a decision, is this good or bad? And a lot of times we'll say, even though God says it's bad, I think it's good. I'm going to do this. 
And we have this sinful pattern. We take and we do what we want to do. But when we think about God and his response to seeing sin, he saw the sin, and instead of deciding it was good or deciding that he was going to take, instead he grieves, he mourns the sin of man, the rebellion of man. And this kind of takes us to this thread that's going throughout the entire Bible. There's this thread that we were created in whose image? God's image. And so one of the things that God, the commands that God gave us was to be fruitful and multiply. And I want to tell you that doesn't just mean have a lot of babies. You see, God has a plan. He wants his image spread across the world. He wants his image spread across the world. And one way you can spread his image across the world is you can uh, teach your children, you can disciple your children, and you can be fruitful and multiply. But another thing you can do is you can live out the image of God. And we see that the entire world had, 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 at one point, there was a line that was living out the image of God, and there was one that was selfish. But now they've come together, and there's no one that's saying, you know what, I want to live in the image of God. I want to be like God. I want to live my life that he, with what he says is good, the way he intended, because he gave us this world. He gave us all of these things. I want to live for him. I want the image of God to be my life. And so... We see this response that how we should react to sin. Instead of us seeing things and deciding whether it's good, we should decide, you know what? I want to grieve sin the way that God grieved sin. If there's any takeaway from this early part of Genesis, I would tell you, if you want to know how to live in the image of God, it's not that you have to be perfect. But it's when you see sin, when you feel or fall into that rebellion, instead of saying, this is good, hey, I can manage this, instead we grieve it and we run back to God. We don't hide ourselves behind a tree. We don't try to explain to God why it happened. Instead, we run to God. And you're going to see this play out. So this is what the Lord said. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have ever made them. Okay, now, first of all, the question that you may have, have asked, why the animals, right? Why, why not just man? Why do, what is the critters? Why do they have to, to suffer? This tells us something interesting about creation. One of the things this is telling us is that all of creation was created for a purpose, and, and it was a gift. And who was it a gift to? To us. The reason that, that God is going to, to destroy it all is, hey, I created all of this for you. And if I'm going to have to take, it, take you away from this, I don't want an aquarium. I don't want to just watch, you know, bugs crawl around. I, I gave all of this for you to subdue, for you to have purpose, for you to be able to flourish and my image to be able to go all over. And so when, when God decides he's going to take away man, he also decides, you know, all of the gifts were for man. There's no purpose to them outside of that. I think that's a powerful thing for us to, to understand when we think about how God, God is so good to us. Every single thing, even the mosquitoes somehow, but every single thing is a gift to us. And that it's just been given. The reason you have a puppy dog or a kitty cat, whatever you have, is a gift. God wanted you to enjoy it. Now, we hear this, and most of us, when we think about Noah and you think about God's role in it, you may think, Man, God was angry and God decided he was going to kill everyone. 
When you read the story and, and begin to, to study it, you begin to see God is not, is not angry. He's grieved. He's not doing this as an act of, of anger. He's doing this as uh, uh, basically saving the world from just being covered in rebellion and evil and destroying ourselves. And God it, it says, you know what? I, I've, got, I've got to get rid of this. I've got to do this. But verse 8, you can never ever go through a chapter of the Bible and not find some hope, some grace. It's all over the Bible. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I want you to think about this. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That tells us, first of all, Noah was not, the Bible is going to go out of its way in this story to show you Noah was not perfect. He is not perfect. He has sins and habitual sins, just like you and I. We're going to find that out. But what he, he says he was blameless. The thing I love about this, it says, in the eyes of the Lord. And this gives us this picture of God. He, he's searching out, looking in the midst of his grief, and grief in, the, in the midst of his frustration with all of our sin and rebellion. Instead of saying, I just can't wait to wipe it out. He says, I'm going to give you 120 years. And during that time, I'm going to search for just someone I can bless, someone that I can carry this on, someone that I can give these gifts to. And you have this picture of God, even though he's grieved and he's having to, to undo what man has done, man, his heart is searching. If I could just find someone. And so he finds someone. Now, when we go through the story of Noah, I'm gonna quickly just go through the, the rest of this, hit some highlights. I want you to see the grace in the story of Noah, that God's heart, even in the midst of grieving our sin and the midst of, of having the consequences of our sin, wipe the world clean through a flood. It says this, I'm gonna skip first to, to verse 11. It says, the earth was corrupt in his sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh corrupted the way on earth. And God said to Noah, I love the fact that he actually talks to Noah. It tells us God wants a relationship with Noah. The one guy that's going to make, hey, if I can bless somebody, I don't just want him to make it. I want to know him while he makes it, while he goes on this journey, while he struggles through this. I want to know him. So he, he didn't have to talk to him. Whatever that means, it might have just been he was talking to his spirit. It might have been an audible voice. We don't know. But he didn't have to talk to him. He could have just got him on a boat somehow and saved him. But instead he said, no, 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 I want to know him. I want to, I want to be a part of this. I want this relationship. And so he says, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. And it goes on to talk about, he's gonna make an, uh, he make an ark of gopher wood. Interesting thing. Uh, no one knows what an ark is up to that point. <laughs> that word was only used one other time in the Bible. Uh, when Moses, his mother, puts him in a raft, he doesn't put him in. A, it doesn't say raft; it says ark. He, Moses was put in an ark and, and put out uh, to save his life. Uh, that's interesting. And then gopher wood. Nobody knows what gopher wood is. That's a little side note. It just says gopher wood, but we don't know what gopher wood is. There's no such thing. He begins to make this ark, and God says, "Here's what I'm going to do." I'm going to cause a flood, but I want you to create this ark. I want you to go through all of this, get all the animals. And it, it begins, that's where we get to verse 18 again. You're going to see it all over. I will establish a covenant with you, and you shall come forth from the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 
God's grace is all over, even when his heart is grieving, even when we are sinning against him, his heart is that he can save us and that he can give us promises of blessing. We see it even when he's in the midst of this chaos of the world. And then it begins to, to lay out what's going to happen. You get the, the story a couple of times when you read it. It says every living th- um, thing you need to bring uh, to the ark, male and female. They shall be uh, male and female, the birds according to their kinds, animals according to their kinds, every creeping thing according to its kind, two uh, of every sort to keep them alive, and every sort of food that is eaten to store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this and all he commanded. When we think of the story of Noah and the flood as we're going to get into it next week also, I'm going to tell you I got questions, okay? I got a lot of questions on how this could be possible. I've got questions on what is 150 days with elephants and everything else? What does the bottom of that ark look like and how does that even, how does that even happen? I've got questions, okay? But I will tell you this is one of those things when we think about this story to me that I take on faith and I, and I just trust God and th- some things I don't understand. But for me personally, I take it on faith that this literally happened, that there was a worldwide flood that somehow God saved every animal. And I want to tell you that what's interesting about this part of the story is, do you know that there are over 50 different stories about a God or about a flood flooding the world worldwide? Every continent that has people on it has a distinct story about men that are, uh, or about a man being saved in an ark or a worldwide flood. Even when I was in Peru, there is a Peruvian uh, myth that is, a, um, that is 1,300 years old that says there was a worldwide flood and animals were saved. And so I just want to, to point out that, and none of these trace back to the same story. They're all distinct, they're all different. Every single continent has a different story. There are over 50 of them. So all of this leads me to believe that it's definitely something happened as far as a flood. But I also want you to remind you, whenever we come to the Bible and we wrestle with these doubts, that when we talk about faith, we don't think that, faith, that our faith is the opposite of doubt. You can have doubt and have great faith. In fact, we say that faith is the opposite of what? Certainty. Faith is the opposite of certainty. When you think you know all the answers, that's when your faith ends. If you've got doubt everywhere as you read through and there are questions that come up about the Nephilim and all that, instead, if you read this and say, you know what? I've got some questions, I've got some doubt, but my faith is God can fill in the gaps. That's how, when I read this, I just, man, I'm gonna be honest that the, the, the concept is there. So when we read this, here's what I want us to do. I, I've said this throughout the entire series. I never want us to get stuck because of our questions, the questions we're bringing to the text. Instead, I want us to just see what the text is telling us. I think that's the correct way to read this first. It's just say, what is God teaching us through these narratives, through these stories? And, and through all of this, God has a consistent story that he's been telling us. The first thing God has been telling us is that the number one problem in this world begins when men and women define what is good and evil. It's when we start to say, hey, I'm going to make up my own choice for me. I'm going to have my own truth. You have your own truth, Whatever, however you want to phrase it. When we start that, that, that path, that is the path in which we are walking away from God. 
Another thing you're going to see in this story is that God is grieved by our rebellion. This, this idea of the, the angry old man with a thunderbolt ready to strike you is not what you see. It's that most of the time you're going to see a God who is grieved by our sin and he wanted so much more for you. He wanted so much more for, for mankind. He had all of these gifts, all of this creation was given to us. And you see a God who is grieved because we have not taken what he intended for us. Another thing you're going to see in every single story is there's always going to be a story of grace. There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be someone that God says, you know what, I'm going to look and if I can bless them. And it's never going to be because they're awesome. It says he was blameless, but Noah was not perfect. He had, I promise you, he had issues. But God says, if I can bless him, I'm going to bless him because maybe his heart hasn't turned yet. He's still with me. God will always look for opportunities of grace. He will always, every single story of rebellion always has an opportunity for grace. And the last thing I want you to see as we go into this is that God saves. You cannot read the story of, of Noah and understand that even if Noah would have done everything right, if God doesn't intervene, Noah drowns in a flood. <laughs> doesn't go well with him. Every single time we sin against God, even if it was a long time ago and we've managed to fix all of our problems, we still have a problem. We cannot save ourselves. Our sin has separated from God, us from God. It has caused a rebellion and only God saves. We saw it with Adam and Eve. God covered the sin. He atoned. It was only God could bring the covering. We see it also now with Noah that God is going to provide the ark. He's going to tell him, I'm going to, to bring these animals. There's no way Noah went and searched. How did he know what a male lizard and a female lizard looked like? There's no way he did that on his own. God did all of this, right? God brought this together. God is the one that saves this thread that we're seeing, these stories of us that we're seeing are not going to stop in Genesis. They're going to keep going. We're going to always see our rebellion starts with our hearts when we decide to walk away from God. But we're going to see God never leaves us alone. He gives us grace. And ultimately, in Jesus Christ, he is the one who saves us. And it, we cannot say God has to cover our sin. He has to provide. And he does that through Jesus Christ. So here's how I want us to end this message today. Whatever you've been struggling with, whatever your heart, had, whatever you think, whether it's politics in this world and you're grieved and you have anxiety about that, or maybe it's about your job and you have anxiety and you're just grieved at what you're facing, I want you to understand this. The number one problem in our life that you and I face, that number one problem is simply that we have sinned against a holy God, that we have gone our own way. And the solution is not for us to fix ourselves. The solution for us is to simply call on the name of God, to simply decide, I want to walk with God. It's what we call repenting. It's when we humble ourselves and say, you know what, God, I'm sorry, I've gone the wrong, wrong way. I've rebelled against you. I need you to save me. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has covered our sins and he has atoned for us. So this week, Whatever you're struggling with, I simply want you to have this confidence of knowing that God will save you from your worst problem. And your worst problem is you. And thank God that we have a, that we have a God that did not leave us to solve this ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for all that you do in the life of the people watching this, in the life of your church, in the life of 
of the people of this world. I thank you so much that instead of us having to figure this out, you've given us a book, you've given us these stories in which we can begin to just read and on whatever level we can, inter- we can understand, whether we're understanding for the first time as a, as a young child or whether we're going through this again and again and even studied it in seminary or wherever, Lord, I thank you so much for the depths of your love and understanding that wherever we are, you meet us with your truth. And the number one thing you reveal over and over again is that you have not just left us alone. You have saved us. And so, Lord, I pray that we walk away with hope today because of the hope of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.